Welcome, welcome. Um, I just want to make sure that today that uh, you have worship guide, and so if you're new and you came in somehow and you forgot to pick up one of these from one of our wonderful greeters, then uh, make sure that you put your hand up right now and we'll make sure you get one of these worship guides. So just keep your hands up and uh, we'll pass them out. Worship guides are really important because not only does it have lots of information inside here, sparingly compared to our bulletin that comes out by email, and so if you don't get those, remember to sign up for those as well, but it also has our Connect card, and that's really important for us, it's important to hear from you, and if you know what to do with that, when you finish with the Connect card, you can place it in the watering can over there, or you can put it inside the offering basket as it passes through the congregation at the end of the services today. But we have some recalibrate questions inside here, and we'll refer to those as we go along, so make sure that you have that. Easter is phenomenal, and I'm really excited to be celebrating it here with you, but uh, it is the birth, and it is the excitement that's going to go forward from next week onwards, and uh, I have an image here to show you what's going to happen starting next week. I think I do. It looks like uh, brown hair. There you go, there you go. The art of manliness. Now, when I first saw this picture, I didn't realize, I thought when Pastor Eli, who's not here, so I can say this, uh, because he's at a funeral and just coming back from it, so I can say this. When he designed this, I thought he was designing a lion's mane. But then he said, no, it's a beard. I was like, a beard, really? No, it's a lion's mane. And so that's what we're looking forward to as we begin the series next week. And uh, we're going to have Tom Eichmann and James Christensen kick the series off for us. And so it's for everybody. Even though it's focusing on men, it's for everybody. Everybody's welcome. So please come and join us next week as we enjoy the art of manliness, as we take the gospel and we apply it to our lives and see what God has called us to actually be. Now, if you're new today and you're thinking, wow, what happens today after the service? We're going to have a whole set of refreshments at the back, so you're welcome to go and, and, and enjoy yourself with some refreshments and stay in fellowship with each other. And after that, we're going to have Bible study classes. And you're thinking, I didn't know there were Bible study classes. I had no idea. Tell me about the Bible study classes. Okay, I will. So, um, up here, really easy. If you don't want to go downstairs, you can just, for the adults, for the kids, it's all downstairs, and we've got great classes for every age group, but for the adults, you just literally go out here, follow the pathway, go into the community room, and that's where we'll have an adult class inside. That class, though, that's a class if you really want to understand you know, the background of context, if you want to understand images and pictures, and you want to see archaeology, and you want to be able to understand the Bible's context all the time, superb class, you should go there. If that doesn't Tickle your fancy. You can go downstairs, and as you go downstairs, just down here, downstairs, there's two classes. On the left side, and there's nothing about sheep and goats here, nothing about right or wrong, but on the left side, not political either, uh, there is a contemporary issues class. And in that class there, great, they always begin with a time of prayer. They begin with everybody sharing what it is that God has asked them to pray about. And we pray for each other. It's, we write it down. We remember what we did last week. We talk about this week where God is working our lives. And they, again, they go through a lesson study. Superb, good discussions. They're not scared to go into any subject. They'll go into that contemporary issues. On the right side, not that the other side was wrong, just literally the right side of the building there, there is uh, the open word class. And they will take the questions that you have inside here and literally go through those. So they'll discuss the sermon that you're listening to today, the reflection, and they'll go through that, and you're welcome to join them for that. Then if you're feeling like, hey, that's not my cup of tea, you can go underneath this church here, the sanctuary. There's a class called The Gathering, 
smaller class, intimate class, good discussions. You should have a PhD to enter in there, kidding. Uh, it's a really smart class. They actually, again, they'll spend time in the Word of God, really good discussions, and it's a great community, so well worth trying that. And if you're a young adult, we have a young adult class for 18 to 24-year-olds, 18 to 24-year-olds, maybe a few years more than that if you're interested in joining, and we go through that same thing inside. So there's a class for everybody, and I want to encourage you today that if you're interested, after the service, had a few more refreshments, come and join us one of those classes and enjoy the experience that we take inside there. Now, we're going to begin uh, inside the Bible, inside here, and uh, we're going to go to the book of Corinthians, which is page 664. Uh, in your Bibles in the pew, if you don't know what page it is, uh, page 664, those Bibles in the pew are for you to be able to take away with you. Uh, you can take them home, you can write in them, you can actually share them with someone, but you're welcome to reference inside there. We're in the English Standard Version. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just out of curiosity, where do you think the children of Israel are right now? <laughs> That's amazing. That's really good. They are in exile still. And the question really that's going to be pondering in the back of your mind is after this weekend, after Easter, are they still in exile or are they not anymore? Well, it's something that we'll have to wrestle through another week, but not for now. We'll get to Galatians at some point here. But here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul, who's articulating as best as he can the Gospels, one of the earliest accounts of him saying, this is the Gospel, this is a story, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles, and last of all, one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. It's not about Paul. Uh, he's just letting you know that in fact, Jesus appeared to so many different people, and those witnesses, those stories were really important. Now, you'll notice here that Paul doesn't really mention the women, and Paul doesn't really mention the tomb, the empty tomb, because the gospel writers spend a lot of time talking about the women and the empty tomb. I don't know if you know that, but uh, Paul, for some reason, decided not to do that, because the empty tomb is good, isn't it? What do you say is good? The empty tomb is good, right? And actually, being a witness and sharing the story is good. But when you put the empty tomb with the witness, then it's great. When you combine the empty tomb with the story that you know of Jesus Christ, then it's great, much better than good. And this is the difficulty that we have sometimes because we think faith is there to be proven, but faith is not there to be proven to us, and faith is not to be argued out. If I can argue this well enough, I will show you and you will have faith. Faith is communicated. It's communicated when you have the empty tomb and the witness, when you see and you experience and you share that. And Jesus understood that, which is our main passage today in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, which is page 610. So turn with me to Luke chapter 24. At the end of this passage here in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, it says here that Jesus himself says to the disciples, see my hands and my feet, that is myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's talking quite candidly to them, saying, I need you to experience God. 
I need you to be able to have a story to tell. Not just that you saw an empty tomb, but you saw that I was resurrected. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. So, the tomb is important. The other thing that Paul didn't mention in that particular thing were, were the women. And if you go to the beginning of chapter 24, verse one, it says this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they. Now, it doesn't even say that they were women, right? It just says, they. Later on, you're gonna gather that they're women because Luke has no problem explaining that they're women because he knows that they're women. They who had already been at the crucifixion, they who had already been at the burial, and they who were now at the tomb had come by here. And the story continues down, as it goes down inside here, we'll get to the section where you'll see that the angels, messengers come out, the angels come out, and they confront these women in verse six. And they say this, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you. Remember? Women were part of the inner circle of Jesus. They were part of his disciples. They sat at the table with Jesus. They understood and they remembered. And that's what the angels are saying to them. Remember how he told you? This is it. This is fantastic. But, unfortunately, we're very good when we're talking about the story. We talk about the empty tomb and we talk about the messengers and the angels. But we forget to remember. We forget that they remembered as well. What does Jesus want us to remember? That's the first question inside your worship guide today. It's down here. What does Jesus want you to remember? What does Jesus want you to remember? Something to take home, something to think about. What is Jesus asking you for that? There are tons of stories of remembrance in the Bible, right? God remembered Noah. Remember that? Pivotal verse in the whole of Genesis, you get the whole story, it all comes down to this, that God remembered Noah, and then the flood recedes, everything takes place. God remembered Hannah, she had a son, Samuel, God remembered Sarah, God remembered Rachel, God remembers all the time inside there. In fact, there's 26 great times where God is saying, he remembers. But there's over 100 plus times where God is saying, do you remember? Do we remember? Are we remembering? And what is it that God is asking us to remember? He asks us to remember the Sabbath day, right? To keep it holy. It's a pretty straightforward one. It's beautiful, the Sabbath day, keep it holy, to celebrate the resistance of the pressure of the culture that says everything must be done every day. And God says, come on, take one day, resist the world, and enjoy one day. Remember this. God says, remember the law as a good guide for your life but God is trying to pull you along and say, hey, this is where it's gonna take place. Last night, we celebrated communion here, and there were the famous words, do this in remembrance of me, right? Where God is saying, do this in remembrance of me. The reality is this, is that faith grows out of the reality of an experience. Faith grows out of reality of experience, especially an experience that you remember. Jim Spicer, he sent me a text, yeah, up there. He sent me a text last night. He said that as he got out of the communion service and he got in the car, and switched on the car, and I think it was on the radio, the song Casting Crowns came on, and, and it just, he said this song, again, seared in him a memory. It just sealed everything that he'd heard in the communion message that Mark had preached so beautifully last night, which, by the way, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in a couple of weeks' time, you, you probably wouldn't know this because I haven't told anyone, <laughs> but you will remember in a couple of weeks' time, we're gonna have our own iTunes podcast account 
where we'll have our messages as video files and audio files, and so you'll be able to go and download those and run and jog and do all those crazy things that you do in Boulder all the time and enjoy the messages again inside this. So we're going to have those as well. But remembering and searing those moments are really, really good. Anybody here a fan of uh, Top Gear? Yeah, all right, all right. So there was this episode years back then, and so maybe you'll remember this, and if not, you can Google it because it's such a famous episode, where uh, Jeremy Clarkson got to the audience and he said to them, you see this Audi, and this is the days when Audi and the TDI was not corrupt. Uh, so <laughs> now <laughs> it's questionable. And so here's this Audi A8, right? And Jeremy said, how many of you think that I can drive this car for 400 miles on one tank of what we would call diesel, you'd call gas, I presume maybe diesel as well. One tank of gas, right? And the audience said, no, you can't do that. They said, well, I'll double it. I'm going to do 800 miles on one tank of gas. And he said, it's a V8 engine, it's huge, huge car, and let's do this. And so the whole, the whole series goes where he drives from London to Edinburgh, and he realizes that to get the maximum efficiency out of the car, he can't switch on the radio. He can't switch on the air conditioning. He can't open the window. He can't drive over 55 miles an hour. He has to be steady, barely breathing, all the way to Edinburgh, and then all the way back, just about. And literally, he had 0.3 miles left of fuel, as he said, it's the gas station, it's the petrol station, and he pulls in, and then he sends Stens outside there, and you know Jeremy Clarkson, he's got words for everything. But this time, he's like, I'm speechless. I don't know what to do. Should I go buy an Audi A8? Not today, but maybe then. I don't know, because he's just overwhelmed by this. And so we remember, because of that great experience, every time we get in the car and every time he got into an Audi A8 or we got into an Audi A8 with a TDI engine, we thought to ourselves, this car's gonna go on forever. We trust it. It's the same with God. It's the same with religion as well. God makes promises to us, and once you start to experience those promises, you trust him, and you hang on to that, and you say it's, it's there. Let me give you an example, and, and, and I just want you to not get upset when I give you this example, because you'll say, how in the world did this example come out of the story that we're reading today? Here it is. You come to church every week. I know, I know, I may have mentioned that more than once. You come to church every week, and you're thinking to yourself, sometimes you come to church, and you think to yourself, I go to church, I go to the worship, I listen to the reflection, I sing the songs, I go down to a Bible study class, and we have a great discussion. Man, it was pretty irrelevant to me. It didn't make a lot, it didn't sink in that much, and I think to myself, why should I bother next time? You know, because it was irrelevant this time. It didn't really speak to the issues that I'm facing. But then one day, when you hit that corner, and you hit that brick wall, everything that you have experienced in church, the messages that you soaked in, the class discussions that you've had, the way that you've opened up the Bible, you remember, and it comes to life. And that's what God is saying to you. He's saying, look, come, experience, store it up into your brain, and let God allow you to remember to pull this through, just as they did this. So you gotta watch this story, this is a phenomenal story, just absolutely amazing in chapters, chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. It is such a classic story, it's like the prodigal son, it's like there's a few with Paul and Romans as well, but this is a great story. I'm really tempted to read it, but time is pressing on us, and so I'm not gonna read this whole story to you, but I hope that at some point, you will sit down and just read the story. It's, it's funny, 
It's interesting. Uh, and it's got so many great insights inside there. But it begins in verse 13 here. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. Now, here's the thing. You saw the video. You saw two guys inside there. Most people, when they think of the two of them, will say, ah, it's got to be two disciples, right? Probably two men then. But I'm a strong believer that one of them was a man and one of them was a woman and they were married. <laughs> and you're like, where did that come from? Well, yeah, it's a little bit all over the place. John chapter 19, uh, for me, John chapter 19 at the cross, you have a guy called, uh, whose wife is there of Cleopas, who's spelt just slightly different. But a lot of scholars say that's probably the same person. And there's more inside the text because they remember and they have connections and stories all connected to it. So I believe it's a husband and wife. You can go with me. We can disagree. It's okay. We're husband and wife, and they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they're going by, it says here in verse 15, while they're walking during the daytime, discussing this, the drew near behind them, Jesus appears, right? Right behind them. They're not perplexed by this, because verse 16 says this, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, you're thinking to yourself, is this because Jesus had changed so much after the resurrection? No. Jesus was the same before, same after, resurrected, came up. They would have seen him and understood he was Jesus straight away. That's why when he comes later on and says, see the scars, they recognized him straight away. No, it wasn't that he had changed in that way. It was that he had made them blind. In fact, the Greek is kind of a passive form that implies that there was some kind of interaction that made them not have sight inside there. Luke is really good at this in 945 and in 1834. He also says here, there's examples where he said, you look and you see, but you don't understand. It's okay because God is covering it up right now. And you see this great conversation as they're going along and then Jesus says to them, so uh, what things happened? as if he's oblivious to all the news that's going on around him. And I, I wondered at that point whether John had actually written this gospel instead of Luke, because you kind of get the humor as he's going along, as Jesus like, really, what are you talking about? Oh, well, what happened? I had no idea, you know, and he's trying to draw them out. And so they said, well, I'll tell you. And they described this Jesus, and I think they're kind of scared, but they're not sure if this man who's walking with them is a spy, or a believer, so they say, well, there was this Jesus, and he was a prophet, oh man, and he goes through the story, and he died, and then we went to the tomb, and the tomb is empty, another connection that implies that they were really connected to the people at the cross, which is why I believe there's a husband and wife going down there, and it says the tomb's there, and they end with the tomb being empty. They stopped at the tomb. It's good, but it's not great. It's the same thing that happens here where Jesus then says to them in verse 26, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer? Now, I want you to take this text, put your finger inside here, and I want you to turn in the same book. So I'm not even gonna give you the page number, okay? Because you're not gonna go that far. You're in Luke, just go back to Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two, verse 49. And keep your fingers right here because I want you to see that the entire story is mirrored between these two passages. These are pretty pivotal passages inside here. Jesus confronts them and he says to them, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer? And you go to Luke chapter two, verse 49, and he said to them, in Luke chapter two, verse 49, why were you looking at me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Well, get this, this is actually two translations of the same Greek word, both of them implying, come on, did you not get it? It's as if there is something in between these two pages, between these two stories, from the very beginning where he said, 
did you not know? And all the way over here, do you not understand that the story that I'm telling you is right in between here is a witness that I'm gonna give you that you may remember. And then he begins, it says in verse 27, he begins explaining who the Messiah is. Just as Philip had done with the Ethiopian when he was questioning, I don't understand this text, Jesus says, let me begin with all of the story. From the beginning of creation all the way to now, through the entire First Testament, if you didn't have the Second Testament, you could understand the Messiah from the First Testament. Many people don't wanna read the Old Testament because they don't understand the beauty and strength of who God is inside there, but he's the same God all the way through. And he understood, and so he explains all the stuff, and they were overwhelmed. So then they say, come on, come in, sit down, and let's eat together. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them. When he was at the table with them. In Hebrew, that is, mikash miet. Let's try and say that together. Mikash miet. Ready? Mikash miet. Mikash miet. It's a really important phrase because it's at the table. Mikash miet. I'm going to see Brent and Angela and say, Come to my home and me cash me at my home. Come to eat with us at the table. This is what we do. And this is what they did. They came to the table. It means little sanctuary. It means mini temple. It means safe place. The table was always a safe place. When you invite someone to come and eat at your home, you're inviting them into a friendship. When you say to someone, hey, let's go out to dinner together, you're saying, I'd like to get to know you. If they are a potential boyfriend or girlfriend, then you're gonna to say to them, let's go out to somewhere nice so that I can impress you with this great meal and you will think that I know the chef personally. That's what we do, right? Mikash Miet, because we're saying at the table, we have conversations of truth and honesty. We have this thing in, inside our tribe in Adventism called the Sabbath lunch. Now, don't Google it. I'm gonna be Google for you. What is the Sabbath lunch? The Sabbath lunch is our place to digest life together. It's what we do on Sabbath. And today is Sabbath for us, and so we celebrate it. So I would encourage you to actually fellowship together, to eat with each other, to mikashmiet at the table together because you have great conversations. I'm amazed at how many people leave church week after week and they go and have lunch with no one, just by themselves. And I bet you, you'd be surprised yourselves if you thought to yourself, man, I've never invited that family to lunch. Let me invite them. Now, some of them are very difficult to get an appointment to have lunch with, but other people are not so difficult. They're not pointing in a particular direction, just saying there are some that it's this way. You know, you're constantly inviting people, and you should. You should invite people to have lunch together because there is so much good that can be done inside there. Zacharias, he understood this, right? Zacchaeus? When Jesus came up to him and said, can I come and eat with you? He understood what he was saying was, let me be a friend with you. Let me have a connection point with you. And Jesus understood this so well, and John articulates this as well, because he describes at the table, everything took place at the table. At the table where Lazarus was, Mary came and anointed the feet of Jesus. She anointed him and prepared him for his burial. Jesus at the table does exactly the same thing that Mary did covers himself with a towel and comes down in the Last Supper and he actually washes the feet of all the disciples, which, which Mark pointed out last night, which I had never realized. I don't know why. You see, this is the beauty of the Bible. You read the Bible multiple times, but I never realized until Mark pointed out last night that Jesus washed all the disciples, 
but nobody washed Jesus' feet. Isn't that interesting? There he is, showing an act of servanthood, and yet they don't even respond. They're like, oh, no, no, don't wash me. Wash my whole body, you know, I, I, but I will not even wash your feet, right? Which is really interesting, the insight inside there about the story. But Jesus serves through there. He served them in the Last Supper. He's going to serve them for their breakfast because he understands the importance of food here, and he does now with this meal. He breaks bread with them. And by the way, when he breaks bread, he's becoming the host. He's no longer just participating. He took over the room, took over the meal, and said, let me break bread with you. Now think of this. Where is the first meal in the Bible? Which one? Genesis chapter three, thank you, Greg. So let's go to Genesis chapter three. Very hard text to find, first book in the Bible. Uh, So I'm not gonna give you a page number for that either. Genesis chapter three. That's the first meal, right, that we have recorded in story form here. And it says that uh, Adam and Eve, and uh, Eve took of the fruit, and she ate of the fruit, and uh, gave it to Adam. And as a result of them eating of this fruit together, they saw something. Sight was revealed to them. And what was revealed to them is that they had lost their connection with God. In Genesis chapter three, verse 22, your Bibles probably says this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, right? That's what it says. That's not what the original languages say. So just as a note, pencil in, you can take your pens out, cross this line out, and this is what you should write. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man was like one of us, knowing good and evil. And when they ate of the fruit and they sinned, when they separated themselves, they were no longer like God. That's what happened. Their sight by that meal had actually taken them away. Now, thousands of years on from Genesis here, there's another meal, and Jesus does this meal, and they eat together, and their sight reveals to them the Messiah. So from this meal to the next meal that takes place in Emmaus, the meal that takes place after the resurrection, this is the significance of it. This is why he went and broke bread with them, because he wanted them to remember the significance that when you eat a meal with God, your sight is restored, and you don't no longer not like God. You actually start to see Jesus. You start to understand that everything is laid at the table. So our question that we have, and our third question here that comes to the end of our message here is this. Our second question, sorry. How can we set the table at home, at church, and in the world? How do we set that table all the way through there? Jesus understood the need at home for us to have a table. And I know in this world and day and age, we have everything is instant, right? You have an instant breakfast, you have your instant lunch, you have your instant microwave, everything is instant. Even the remodeling of homes has changed where you no longer have kitchens, really, that have a kitchen table. What they have instead of a kitchen table is the kitchen, what do they call it, thing in the middle? Island. What's an island imply? By yourself. You're no longer sitting together. You're sitting opposite each other now. The day where we used to all sit together and have breakfast in the kitchen, and then we had the dining room table where we would have guests, that's gone. We've all merged it together now because we don't actually even eat together. And yet in our homes, we should be spending time. I mean, look what happened to Eve when she ate by herself. Mm. So, I mean, these are all good things. Steve Jobs, when he was alive, he said, look, I, I, you know, I love all the inventions that part of Apple has done, but he limited his kids to how much time they had on the iPad. When he had a meal at home, he said, no technology. Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine that? I would have thought that Steve Jobs would have had all of his iPhones out there, right in front of him, displayed in crystal cases and just playing with them and saying, I like this one and I don't like, no, he pushed all of that away because he understood the value of sitting down at a table and having conversations with each other. So when we set the table, God is saying to us, this is what I want you to do, I want you to set the table, break the table, you have truth and trust built up because you talk and you ask questions, you see each other, no devices anywhere near there. How do we set the table at church? You know that in the Gospel of Luke, 70% of, of all the parables in the Gospel of Luke all cover uh, a situation where food is involved. Church has food, <laughs> and church should provide food. It's the reason why we've actually moved ourselves from calling our lunch that we have here on the second Saturday, second Sabbath of every month, our potluck lunch. Well, I don't know if you know this, but we're moving it to our fellowship lunch. Because it's not a potluck, it's a fellowship lunch. It's about us coming together, eating together, fellowshipping together, getting to know each other, building stories together, and that's what the church is called to. It's called to be abundant and beautiful and grow inside there. Now, as you eat in different places, your taste buds change, do they not? You maybe acquire a better appreciation for some things more than others. Um, some of you have eaten at the most famous restaurant, which is categorized all the time as the Olive Garden, right? I know, I know, you, you're like, ah, oh, the Olive Garden. Well, I remember I was in this town in, down in Florida sometime and with some people, and, and we were traveling, and, uh, and we wanted to go eat some Italian food, and one person said, we should go to the Olive Garden, and my stomach just said to me, oh, please, I don't want to go to McDonald's, and I don't want to go to the Olive Garden. I've tasted Italian food. The Olive Garden is pretend Italian food. And, and, so, and so I was like, yeah, we should go somewhere else. And, and this person we were with, uh, he was just adamant that the Olive Garden was gonna be fantastic for us. You know, and I was like, oh. And then literally, in the corner of our eye, we saw Maggiano's. And I said, well, at least that's a little bit of an upgrade, right? So we went into Maggiano's and we ordered our food and, and at the end of the, the meal, right, the, uh, the waiter comes by and he's all pretentious, he pretends to be French probably or something like this and, and, and he's, he's offering us, you know, the options for dessert and this colleague of ours who, who was with us, he said, oh, well, well, tell me about the ice cream. What's, what's the ice cream like here? Is the ice cream, is it like really good ice cream? Is it gooey? Is it thick? And, and the guy looked at him and he said, this is not the Olive Garden. <laughs> were the Maggiano's, and, and we all died laughing. We couldn't believe this. We were like, I couldn't have paid him more <laughs> to say this, to deliver us for this. And here's the thing with faith. As your faith grows, as your taste grows, you will not be satisfied with franchise faith. You understand that? The Easter story is not franchise faith. It's faith that's transformative to who you are. You're not gonna be satisfied even with Maggiano's. You're gonna to want to go and develop it more. And your church, you're not gonna be satisfied with just making it look and feel like every other church in town. You want it to be unique. You want it to be a blessing. You want it to reach to you and to your kids and to your friends. And you wanna be able to grow. And that's how we set the table at church. And how do we set the table in the world? Well, here's the difficulty for us is that we have really resisted partying, haven't we? <laughs> but the Bible's got lots of parties in it. It's constantly having joy. I mean, even when you celebrate communion, right? You have bread and you have juice because you have bread for sustenance, you have juice for joy. I mean, it's encouraging to have joy all the time. And there's, he says, he says, come to the banquet. 
I'll give you the clothing for it. Come and join and celebrate with me. God is constantly talking about celebration. And we've lost all of that in the world these days. Nobody plays out on the streets anymore because it's just not safe. We go to a park, right, where we don't talk to people. Where do we meet people these days? You have to go to a gym or some yoga studio or somewhere strange and weird and sit down there. I mean, it's the reason why we go to a coffee house and we sit down there and we, we order our really exotically weird coffee drinks just so that we can hopefully generate a conversation with somebody who orders the same drink as us and maybe we would have something in common. We can be friends. I know there are crazy people there too. Everywhere there are, but we, if we're gonna be in the world, we should be actually breaking down all the barriers. That's what we should be doing. We should be celebrating together. There's this great story told of uh, Frank Sinatra in the 1950s. He wasn't doing well in his career, and he used to go to this restaurant uh, in New York. It's actually uh, called Patsy's on West 56th Street in New York, and he'd go sit down there and he'd eat the food there. And while he was eating the food there every night, because he had no friends by himself all the time, um, he just realized that, you know, friends are only temporary in life and he just has to continue plowing on and hoping that one day he'll be able to move his career further. Came to Thanksgiving time and uh, Frank said to Patsy, who was the owner, said to her, uh, listen, I just, I need you to, uh, don't give me any turkey. I don't want to remember that it's Thanksgiving. I just want my usual table. I'll sit to the side over there. I'll just be by myself. Patsy couldn't handle this, so she invited all of her friends, all of her staff, all of her family, everybody she knew, and filled the entire restaurant to celebrate Thanksgiving with Frank. And he never forgot it. He never forgot it. Even when he became a famous singer, he always went back to that restaurant. People never understood. Why are you going back to this place? Of all the places you could have enjoyed a better taste or something, he said, I remember people who remember me. That's what we are. That's what church is. We live here in Easter, and we celebrate Easter. And celebrating Easter is not just about the empty tomb, but it's about remembering that God remembers us. And when God remembers us, he's saying, you gotta do something with that. You gotta share that story with somebody. You gotta be able to say to somebody, hey, I want to live at the table with you. I want to fellowship with you in my home, in my church, and in the world. Now, may the God of peace, who puts all things together and makes all things whole, who made an everlasting covenant with us through the sacrifice of Jesus, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip us with everything we need for doing his will. May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus the Messiah, to whom be all glory forever and ever. Amen.